Welcome to Wherever You Go, There You Are. In this podcast, we will discuss addiction, recovery, and thriving on the other side. If you are sober curious, in recovery, or someone affected by another person's addiction, this podcast is for you. Each week, we will speak with someone in recovery or affected by addiction, or an expert in the recovery space. I am your host, Vanessa Wellstead. I hope that by sharing our stories, you feel less alone and more a part of. Good morning. It's Vanessa Wellstead, your host of Wherever You Go, There You Are. And I am here with Erica Fluger. Erica and I both reside in Marin County, Northern California, just over the Golden Gate Bridge. And I'm super, super excited to introduce y'all and to have connected with her. Erica has just launched her sober coaching business, Next Right Thing Coaching which I just have to tell you, I so love the name of your business, Erica. It just tickles me every time I say it. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Really love it. Um, so Erica, welcome. Thanks for being thank with you. us this yeah, morning. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Absolutely. Super happy to be here. I have a feeling that this will just be the first of many times that you join us, but I wanted to introduce you to our listeners by having you tell us your story and share with us, you know, what happened, what it was like, and what's it like now. Yeah, totally happy to share that story with you. Um, so my name is Erica Fluger, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is July 13th, 2018. Um, it's, you know, it's funny when you tell your story, it's always different. It's never the same. So, uh, I'll just kind of start at the beginning, I guess. Um, so I was raised in Southern California, mostly by my single mom. My parents divorced when I was five. And uh, we moved around a lot, uh, very chaotic sort of life. Um, my my mom, I don't know why this is pertinent, but just to give you an idea of the vibe I, I had growing up was like very much Cher from um, Mermaids. I don't know if you ever saw that movie, but she very... She looks like Cher. She's got big hair, lots of makeup, you know, she's beautiful. And she's just like, ah! you know, it was just always either laughing, crying, screaming. Um, and a lot of times it was fun. And then other times it was not so fun. Um, and when, <laughs> when, so my mom, I have two older brothers. Um, we moved away from my brothers and my dad and, um, when I was five and that was really hard. I don't think I realized how hard it was until I was much older, but kind of just being torn away from that family was um, pretty devastating, I think. And I would start, it took like a year or something for my dad to get back into the same town as we were. in. And then at that point I started going to his house every other weekend and around nine, I kind of started going through an identity crisis. It was really strange. I felt like this very odd child. Like I just did not feel like I fit in and I felt weird. And I started 
sharing this with my mom and crying and um, just feeling like a real outsider. And one day, one day she took me to this old woman's house and was like, this is my friend. And I was like, okay, that's weird. Like this weird old, like musty old lady house. And um, this woman was like doting on me and like, maybe I could take you to the movie sometime or something. And I was like, this is very strange. And then not too long after that, my mom sat me down in the kitchen one day and she was like, I um, want to get your opinion on something. I have some advice I want to get. I, I just was reading this, you know, like Ann Landers column. And there was this uh, woman who wrote in looking for advice and she was married and she had two kids and she had an affair and got pregnant and had a baby and um, didn't tell anybody that it wasn't her husband's and um, and then the husband eventually you know found out and they decided to raise the baby together and then uh, and then they got divorced and now the little girl's older and the mom's wondering if she should tell her daughter or not about her real father and I was always like from the get like very justice oriented and like wanted fairness and like always like fighting for the underdog and um, so I'm like, without any hesitation, I was like, yes, she absolutely needs to know. Like, that is so wrong to lie to her and da 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 and, and my mom was like, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, we kind of just dropped it. And then I think it was like a week later when she was like, so that story I told you um, was about you. So your dad's not actually your dad. And that woman we went to go visit was your grandmother. And my whole life just kind of fell apart. You know, like everything I knew about myself was a lie. Um, everybody had been lying to me. And that was my first uh, identity crisis. You know, that was really like the turning point in my life for me. And uh, there wasn't any guidance in my home. There was a lot of neglect. I was like one of those typical 80s kids. You know, I grew up in LA in the 80s and had zero supervision, like none. And my mom worked two or maybe three jobs at a time, waitressing. She was gone all the time. So I was like getting myself up in the morning and eating cereal and walking to school and walking home and making dinner and putting myself to bed many times. And, and I just kind of, you know, once I got to middle school, things got really awful. I was just, um, I, I had, I was so lost. I had no idea how to do school. I was always a good student and things came really easily to me. And then I got to middle school and I was like, I have no idea how to do any of this. Um, I, you know, the boys were awful and, you know, so much like sexual harassment. And uh, I was terrified of the cholas at my school. <laughs> I was like trying to stay alive. And, uh, you know, my best friend and I would just like get into all kinds of trouble. And 
we would find substances. We'd smoke her mom's cigarettes. We would, you know, we got, I think the first time I got drunk was at her mom's wedding, which happened at their house and nobody's paying attention. So we were just like drinking all this hard liquor and I got completely trashed. It wasn't, I know I hear a lot of people sometimes say like, oh my God, I had my first drink and that was it. Like, you know, but that didn't happen for me. Um, I liked it. I thought it was cool. Um, and then I'd start, you know, try smoking pot because that's what everybody's doing, but I actually hated it. I never liked it, but I would do it anyway because everybody was doing it. And it's like, well, it's just a way to be altered. So I'll do that. But my real first love was snorting speed. That was like, whoo, where has this been all my life? And it, it gave me this feeling of like, confidence and just like feeling so excited about the world and I don't know it was just this great feeling that I love um got into a lot of trouble I was always hiding always lying I was always terrified of my mom and for pretty good (laughs) reason you know and so that was just like always living this sort of secret life of drugs and boys and um, oh, and I should mention, I grew up with extreme evangelical Christians, and that was always kind of indoctrinated in me. Um, and so there was a lot of fear there, too, around like sinning and God and punishment and going to hell. And, um, you know, when when I was 11, I think the uh, Gulf War happened. And the whole Christian community was like, this is the end times. Jesus is coming back. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm going to get like, I'm going to be leaving this earth. Like, I'm never going to, you know, experience this or that. And then there was this whole other component. I'm totally going off a tangent. But it was just like it was so um, traumatizing. It was really traumatizing, actually, to like tell a child, you know, your life is over. It's pretty fucked up. And then the other thing was, if you weren't saved, if you weren't like a good Christian, you would get left behind and you would have to live on earth with like a total hellscape, like run by Satan. And uh, the seven years of tribulation, I think they call it. And um, the only way to get into heaven was to get your head cut off. That was like this whole story I was told as a child. So, you know, living with just like this constant, like extreme fear of like trying to be good, but I was also being really bad and always acting out and just trying to always find substances because, um, you know, that feeling of being an outsider just really never left me. Um, I always had like one best friend that I latched onto and I would make friends with their friends and I I never was able to develop any kind of group of friends on my own. Um, I, it didn't help that I moved like 15 times before I got to high school. And just because my mom was crazy, not like, cause we were in the military, <laughs> just cause that's how my life went. And, uh, I went to five high schools. Um, it was, not uh yeah it was a very inconsistent chaotic childhood um oh and I forgot to mention my mom married my biological father when I was 14 
who was very physically ill and mentally ill. So that was a whole other level of um, craziness. So luckily when I was 16, I met my best friend and we sort of saved each other's lives. And ironically, we ended up like hanging out at church, even though like the church really like screwed us up. It was also became a, a haven of safety. I found a really good group of like good guys and and other, um, you know, girls my age who were good kids. And we all looked out for each other and we had a lot of fun together. I really think those people saved my life in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, I barely I don't even know how I graduated high school, honestly. Like I totally fudged my way through it. I had to go to continuation school the fall semester of senior year. And then um at the end, when I went back to the regular high school and I had to take like sophomore math or something, like, and I was so embarrassed that I was a senior in sophomore math that I acted out so horribly at this math teacher like he was like a total nerd like and like one of those people that just got bullied you know he was just like so bullyable and I bullied this man it was horrible I was horrendous because the other sophomore kids thought I was so cool for doing it and and the fact was like I was just so mortified and embarrassed that I had to be in this class, you know, so I was acting out. And at the end of it, he pulled me aside at the end of the semester and he's like, look, if I give you this final, you're going to fail and you're not going to graduate high school. So I'm not going to make you take it. I was like, oh my God, why are you doing this for me? I've been so awful to you. But that, I don't know why he did that for me, but it like saved me, you know? I don't know what I would have done if I wasn't allowed to graduate high school. I mean, that would have been horrible. So, you know, some angel was looking out for me back then. And at the end of high school, I had no idea what I was going to do. No one ever went to college in my family. There was no, you know, everybody in my family has some form of addiction, um, lots of alcoholism, drug addiction on every side and area in my family. And I didn't know what I was going to do. My best friend, who was a lot better at academics and, and understood the school system um, was like, "Hey, go to community college with me." I'm like, how do you do that? I don't, I don't know. So I ended up going to community college and and discovering I really liked it. I was like, "Oh, this is so much cooler than than high school. I can like choose the things that I'm interested in figuring out." And um, so I really liked that. And I think it was around that time, like 18, 19 is when my, cause I kind of dabbled in and out of drugs all of my teenage years and, um, was smoking a pack a day of cigarettes at age 14, like pretty much till I was about 25. And, uh, I got, you know, around 18, I started doing a lot more drugs and drinking a lot more and, um, 
you know, I was going out partying and I, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with Southern California, but like you have to drive an hour to get everywhere. And so we would go drive an hour to anywhere and go drink all night and then drive somewhere else and then drive home. So there were many, many times I drove home, like just completely drunk. And by the grace of God, nothing ever happened to me or anybody else. And I don't know why. Um, one of the things I heard when I first came into the rooms was this guy came up to share. And the first thing he said was, life is not fair. Thank God. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, right. Because if life was fair, I would have gotten my comeuppance a long time ago. And so, you know, because there had always been this like, life isn't fair. Why me? Why didn't I get this? Why didn't I get that? And just always kind of living in that mode of victimhood and feeling like, you know, I was owed these other things that other people got. Um, and so I got to, you know, community college and I was drinking and sleeping my way through with everybody and anybody. And that was, you know, that was my MO. Um, just getting drunk was my excuse to just go find men and sleep with them. Um, and it always felt terrible. It was always terrible. I'd get drunk, hook up with somebody. Then I guess just started dating sort of, we would just begin a relationship and then I'd get kind of sick of them. And then I'd find another party, get drunk, hook up with somebody else and be like, sorry, I'm done with you. I'm going to start with this new person now. And it was horrible. It was so horrible. Um, and I, I, I think at 23, um, I had, I had been, I had moved to the Bay area when I was 21, I think. Yeah, I think I was 21 and, uh, moved. My best friend was going to Cal Berkeley and I was still doing the community college thing. And, uh, eventually finally tra uh, transferred to San Francisco state, but then everybody moved back to Southern California after they were graduated because they had like followed a normal track <laughs> and we're done in like four years, like, you know, normal. And so I was kind of left behind on my own and was living with some insane roommate and waiting tables, getting through school. And I was just like doing Coke and drinking. I was drinking probably a bottle of wine every single night by myself. It was a very sad, lonely life. And just always kind of looking for the next guy. Um, I didn't have any friends. I was always very isolated. And, you know, I don't know. It was just such a, I just didn't know who I was, you know? I was just, I never, I remember writing in my journal when I was like 14. I was like, I'm so sick of being a chameleon. Like, I don't know who I am. I just morph into whoever I'm around. Because, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was a coping mechanism. That was my safety. Like, I felt like I had to do that to protect myself. 
because it was too dangerous to actually be me. So there I was, you know, early 20s, just like living this really sad little life. And when I was 24, I was waiting tables um, or I got this job at Momo's in San Francisco, which was right across from the ballpark. And um, I met this really cute guy who trained me and he was 14 years older than me. So I was like 24 and he was like 38, but um, he was so normal. I thought <laughs> no, he's mostly here. He's like, he, he didn't drink like me. He, he didn't smoke. And he was just like, you know, this, he went to Stanford and, you know, he master's degree in Japanese history and he spoke fluent Japanese and dropped out of his PhD program at Stanford to become an actor. And I was like, whoa, that's so cool. Like, you know, he went and followed his dream and, and, uh, we just like magnetically could not resist each other. And, um, he asked me to marry him three weeks after we met. And I said, yes. And then three weeks after that, we were living together. And then a year later we were married. So we had this very <laughs> whirlwind, you know, romance. And, and then like when we got married, everything kind of changed. And I was like, I don't, this isn't the guy I think thought he was exactly uh we were quite opposite and oh and when we met I was like he's a total normie like you know he's one of those people that will like drink a half of a beer and then put it down and I'm like okay I do not understand that like you either go all in or why bother at all I do not understand this like you know have a half a glass or something so when we moved in together, I was still smoking like a pack a day. And I was like, oh, this is so gross. I have to quit smoking. So I just like quit cold turkey. And um, and then I started really monitoring my alcohol consumption because he doesn't drink. And so it really, my like secrecy of drinking began then where I was always pretending like I was a normal drinker, like, yeah, I'll just have a glass of wine with dinner when I wanted to drink the whole bottle. And I was always obsessing about it. Always like wondering, you know, when's the next, you know, dinner party going to happen? When's the next wedding going to happen? When's the next opportunity for me to drink as much as I possibly can and not be judged for it because of circumstance. So I was always, you know, obsessing and planning around it. And and not even realizing it really, and not even realizing the amount of dishonesty there was going on in me managing this and hiding it. And, you know, I finally graduated from San Francisco State. Um, we actually got, we were on um, my honeymoon, like during finals or like right after <laughs> finals or something. So I was in college still. Um, and I didn't know. I just went back to waiting tables. I didn't even know what to do. Like I had a bachelor's in sociology and I was like, I don't know. I have no idea what to do. Um, so I didn't have a plan. I just went back to doing what I knew how to do. And then 
I thought I would try graduate school. I wanted to do like high school counseling. Like I wanted to help kids and I applied to a program and I messed up and I applied for the wrong program. And so I was going to have to do it all oh, the application process all over again. I was like, I am not doing this. I'm just going to have a baby. Screw it. So that's what I did. I had a baby instead of going to graduate school and that will, you know, as you know, rocks your whole world like everything you think you know about yourself goes out the window and uh, you know a, another whole new identity crisis like who am I now that I am this person and I don't you know it was in my first year of being a mother was really 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 hard I just I didn't have anybody I don't have family up here so it's um you know it was a lot for me to take on to my for my own and I had a really you know my baby was challenging I didn't sleep um and I think probably had postpartum I don't know but um you know once I had her something switched in me and I was like I don't give a fuck anymore if he sees me drinking I am done like I'm just gonna drink as much as I want and I don't care if he judges me. So I did. I started just drinking as much as I wanted. Well, not exactly as much as I wanted. I still like tried to manage it. And, you know, I don't think he really thought much of it. He didn't think it was really, you know, anything to be concerned about. I think I, I did it enough in moderation that it was like, you know, I drink and it's it's average or whatever. And then I had my second child in 2011, and I think that's when things really started to get worse. I, it was just a lot. It was a lot, and you know, being the parent of of two young kids, um, and living in a marriage that was really dysfunctional, like extremely dysfunctional on both of our parts, but neither one of us knew what was going on you know like my husband grew up in an alcoholic home I grew up in an alcoholic home I was an alcoholic but neither of us really realized it and we didn't know how to solve any of our problems so you know things were pretty awful for a long time and I did not know how to deal with any of it. I had zero coping mechanisms. I had zero solutions other than to drink. That was it. And um, things got really bad. I think the last couple of years of my drinking, um, I, I just, I don't know. I, I was in so much pain. I think I was just writing about this, I think a couple days ago. It was like I knew there was so much more in me. Like I knew there was this very creative person. I've always written, um, I always wanted to make movies and write screenplays, and I wanted to be a, you know, a public speaker. I wanted to help people. Like I had all of these visions for myself, and I had absolutely no idea how to get there. And then I was this mom of two kids and I was like, I don't have any time to 
develop myself. I have to develop these kids. And that conflict of not being in alignment with who I knew I was deep inside and my values and expressing fully all my talents and gifts to the world and having them just be buried and drowning under all this alcohol was unbearable. It it just killed me. And the more, you know, I got further and further away from those dreams and the older I got, like the worse my drinking got. And I I woke up a couple of days after my 38th birthday and I was like, what is happening to my life? What, how did I get here? Like, I don't understand. I had this idea somehow by 40, I was going to have it figured out and I was going to be doing all the amazing things I saw myself doing just by like osmosis, like hanging out with cool people who were doing cool things. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that too. Somehow I'm not, <laughs> not going to take any action towards any of those things. Cause I don't know how. Um, so this like wake up call when I was 38 kind of set me on this journey of like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to get out of this. And I started kind of, you know, delving into the like self-help world and reading all the Brene Brown and um, all of the books. Right. And, and it was so interesting because the more I gained this self-awareness and um, having that sort of understanding of that, that personal development that I never knew anything about um, the more I got into it, the worse I felt and the more I drank. And, and so it was interesting because um, at the end of 2017, which is when I had this like awakening, um, I, I happened to come across a journal of mine and it said in it, become a life coach. I was like, what? I don't, oh my God, I completely forgot about this. And so, you know, I'm in this like beginning process of journey of discovering who I am and and trying to figure out how to accomplish these, you know, dreams of mine. And I found this entry and I was like, oh my God, this is it. That's what I'm supposed to do. So I was like, well, if I'm going to be a life coach, I better hire a life coach. So I hired a life coach. And then, you know, she um, told me about this coaching program. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And uh, I had no money for it, her or this coaching program. And, but I was like dead set. Like I am doing this. I know I need to change my life. I you know. And meanwhile, I'm like drinking, drinking, and, um, just like complete denial, complete denial about my drinking, even though I was waking up every single morning hungover and like full of shame. And so it's like these two, uh, completely opposite people you know, trying to live this double life. And I, um, so I hired this life coach and I want to do this program and I didn't know how I was going to pay for it, but I just was going to do it anyway. And I came home one day and there was a check in the mail for the exact amount of money I needed for these things. Like out of the blue, some random check from the government 
the exact amount of money I needed for these things. I'm like, okay, that was the first time I've had any kind of spiritual experience, like since I was a kid. Oh, and that was the other thing. I was like, I was a recovering, you know, religious person, you know, it's a spiritual abuse is what I call it. It really was spiritual abuse. And it disconnected me from my understanding of a higher power for decades. Um, and so this was my first experience with like, oh my God, maybe there is something out there, you know, helping me. And so I go to this coaching program and it was like a four day, like I had to go away for four days in Sacramento to do this intensive. And one of the first things they tell us is, um, so for the whole weekend, we want you to abstain from alcohol and drugs. And I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? I have to be in a hotel room by myself for four days without any alcohol. And I white knuckled my way through it. Like there was, you know, every night I was like, I could just go down and get a bottle of wine. You know, I was, it was really hard, but I was so proud of myself because by the end of it, I hadn't done it. And it was so funny because at the end of the four days, um, she asked everyone like, oh, did you, did everyone, you know, abstain from alcohol and drugs? And this one woman was like, well, I had, you know, a couple of glasses with wine last night. I mean, I mean, with dinner last night, it doesn't really affect me. Like, you know, I didn't think it was a big deal. And um, the woman, the founder and facilitator of the group had had left early the day before to go to a wedding. And so this woman was like, well, what about you, Maria? You went to a wedding last night. Didn't you drink? And she just put her hand on this woman's shoulder and said, I haven't had a drink in 25 years. You know, I'm sober. I've been in a program of recovery for 25 years. I was like, oh, that's interesting that I signed up for the coaching program that's run by recovering alcoholics. That's another like, ding, 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 you know. So um, at this point in my drinking, so this is like spring of 2018. And I, it got to the point, like I had always felt like I was managing it. Of course I wasn't because I never knew. It was always Russian roulette. Like maybe I'll be fine. Maybe I'll be blacking out in a hotel. I don't know where I'll be. You know, it was always this live, like I'm, I can control this, but that was never the case. Um, and it finally got to the point where I couldn't control it. And I knew I couldn't control it. I would be waking up at, you know, three o'clock in the morning. I call it drunk over because I was drunk and hung over at the same time at that point, you know, just like still feeling the drunkness, but then also like the horrible headache and the nausea and all of that. And then I'd be in, you know, going, going pee, sitting on the toilet going, why God, why, How, why do I keep doing this? And just that shame, feeling that horrible shame and never wanting to do it again and vowing to myself that night, I was not going to do it again. And then at five o'clock I'd be pouring the wine. And I got to the point where I remember feeling like, I feel good right now. I don't want to drink. I'm not going to drink tonight. And, and then it was just like, I was possessed. It was so weird. I would be pouring the wine and literally saying in my head, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to drink right now. And I'm just pouring it and drinking. And I couldn't stop. My like for the for about a year, my kidneys were hurting. Like I would have aching kidneys and just like pretend it wasn't happening. And 
there came a point for the um, second module of this coaching program where I had to do it again and stay away for four days. And this time I stayed in a room at an Airbnb in a house. And I felt like I was detoxing because I tried to, you know, I did it. I didn't drink those four days and I would just do the thing and then come back to the room and just lie in the dark in the covers and just like wanted to die. And I think it was about two weeks later that um, I was, I, I had some family over, big drinkers. So I was like, yeah, game on. I can drink as much as I want because they drink more than I do. So I'm going to just have at it. So I, I was drinking and drinking and completely obliterated. And I woke up at my normal, you know, three o'clock in the morning. Oh, and often when I did this, you know, most nights and when I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I would go into the kitchen and drink tequila because I was like, oh, well, I got to get back to sleep. So, you know, I better drink more. So that was, you know, my solution for that. So, um, so this last drunk of mine, I woke up at whatever, three in the morning and I, I realized I had to go to this, my kid's school the next day for an event, like where we were going to have to spend like three hours there with like all these other parents. And I'm like, the moment I started drinking the night before that all went out the window, I completely forgot about it. It didn't matter. All that mattered was my drink. That's all I cared about. And when I woke up in the morning, I realized like, oh my God, I'm going to be so miserable and so hungover today. And people are probably going to smell alcohol on me. And I was, I was just, I was just so done with myself. I was so disgusted with myself and knew, and I've, I've just seen addiction just destroy so many people's lives. And I knew the path I was headed down and I, I loved myself just enough to get out of that and call a friend and say, I think I need help. I think I need to get sober. And she was like, you want to go to a meeting? For some reason, I had all these sober friends. <laughs> it was very interesting. So I had plenty of people to call. So we got, I got to a meeting and that was it. So that was July 13th of 2018. That absolutely changed my life. Like I, you know, I did what was suggested of me. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I got a sponsor. I worked the steps. I saved my marriage. We saved each other. And I did a lot of therapy, still do, and got to the place finally, you know, um, during the pandemic where I was like, I am no longer that person I was, you know, four years ago or whatever it was at the time. And I'm ready to like take take the amazing gifts of recovery that I have received and now create my life for the first time ever. I get to finally go after those things that so badly need to be put out there into the world. So I, I restarted a different coaching program because it just was a better fit for me and, uh, you know, completed that. So, you know, so now I'm a certified professional life coach, which never would have been possible. Um, and it just like cracks me up that I thought I was going to be helping people <laughs> hitting trash every single night. And yeah, so I, I quit my coaching program when I got sober. I was like, yeah, I think maybe I need to like 
work on myself a little bit before I can help another human being. So yeah, it's a completely different life on this side. And I just want so many people to realize that like, I just, it breaks my heart to see people suffering with this disease and watching people just languish and die sometimes because of it. And it just, it doesn't have to be that way. And, you know, that's why I I call my coaching program joyful sobriety. And it's not that like sobriety is all, you know, unicorns and rainbows. Like, I'm not saying like, you're going to be like happy all the time. But what I am saying is like, I get to experience the joy of knowing that no matter how bad life gets, it would always be so much worse if I was drinking. So I am so glad and so grateful for that all the time. And that's the beauty and and joy for me and sobriety. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much my story. Cliff Notes version. (laughs) Well, Erica, thank you so much. Wow. Um, That's quite a ride you took us on and um, I'm happy to be here for it. Yeah, and it, it's a beautiful story. Um, I can hear how excited you are to help people on this journey and to really, like, I am very grateful for your vulnerability and your willingness to share your story because it is so important for folks to hear that they don't need to suffer alone. <laughs> and... I'm sure you're not the only person going in for a shot of something at three in the morning, you know, it's just, you know, you think about that version of us and like how sad it is that that was our solution. Yeah, that was it. That was the only thing I knew. You know, and you and I were witness to someone who was so overcome with um, emotion reading the promises yesterday. Mm -hmm. And that really, really stayed with me. Me too. And actually I had just forgotten about that for a moment, but when you came back to talking about joyful sobriety and that it's not always unicorns, but you know, where that woman really was overcome with emotion was a second promise, which is we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. And so maybe it's not that, you know, it's rainbows and unicorns all the time, but it's the promise that there is freedom and there is a new and different happiness that we will experience. Yes. You know, I I like tearing up right now just thinking (laughs) about that moment yesterday, because when I heard those promises for the first time in AA, in the rooms of AA, I wanted that so badly. Like I thought, oh my God, if you mean to tell me if I do this, I will get that. Oh my gosh. Like I will do anything to get that, you know, like hearing, I mean, I just love AA and I think the program is just like insanely brilliant and a miracle. And when you hear like those things laid out, like who thought of this? Like, this is incredible that somebody wrote this out so perfectly and so beautifully. And, and that regardless of, you know, what has happened in our world, right. Mm -hmm. Um, that they're still applicable 
to our world here in 2022, you know, Mm -hmm. that someone had the foresight to know um, that the feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear, that those were, and actually it was men that wrote this, right? And so Mm -hmm. then that there were men that could put these words to emotions and foresight is really, to me, pretty radical. That is, Um, especially at the time. It was like, what, the 40s? Yep. Yeah. So for anyone who hasn't heard the promises, maybe I'll just read them through real quick. Mm, mm -hmm. Okay. So the AA promises. One, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Two, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Three, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Four, we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Five, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Six, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Seven, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Eight, self-seeking will slip away. Nine, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Ten, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Eleven, we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And twelve, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Very powerful. Extravagant promises. We think not. (laughs) I love it. So tell us more about your, your coaching business and what it looks like for Mm -hmm. someone to come to you, you know, and what are the first steps that you take with them? Is everyone's Mm -hmm. treatment plan a little bit different? What does it look like? So I've been, so the last couple of months I've been developing, well, I say the last couple of months, but really it's been in development for like three years, really, um, because this is what I've wanted to do for so long. Um, So the coaching program is a year long program and it really is designed for women who, who have that longing and calling in them who really want to live a bigger life, who feel like they have this purpose that hasn't been able to, you know, come to fruition yet because, you know, it just wasn't possible in active addiction. And now, you know, they're at a point in their recovery, like I was, where it's like, okay, I have this amazing foundation. I have all of these tools. I have the blueprint to live a healthy, functional life now. So now what am I going to create with it? And that's what the program is for. It's like taking that recovery and now getting to create that life to, to help, you know, take those promises you've received and now get to design this life around it. So the coaching program is a year long coaching program. And I do start off, it's, it's basically, um, well, I, five or six things I'd say. So the first part of the process is um, helping women detach from their brain. Basically, it's about finding your core self because discovering your identity in recovery is one of the 
the biggest parts I, I think of recovery is like, you are no longer that person. You, um, you know, being a sober person in this world is, uh, unique and challenging at times because it is pushed on us so, so aggressively in our culture that drinking, you're weird if you don't drink this toxic poison, just, you know, bizarre. Uh, and so, you know, finding your identity in this world as a sober person, um, you know, you're changing your whole life, often changing friendships, um, you know, um, relationships with family members, like so much changes in recovery. And, um, and so many of us have completely lost touch with who that person was when we were kids, who that perfect being is that came into this world with all of the things that that we needed to to live our you know fully expressed authentic lives like we have all of that in us and it just gets covered up with all of the muck with all of the traumas and all of the cultural conditioning and capitalism and consumerism and misogyny you know it's just and so it's this sort of excavation, excavation, is that the right word? Process of just like removing all of those things and getting to that core self again and really being able to um, like fully uh, develop this identity. And that process begins with, you know, looking at your beliefs, getting really clear on what your values are um, boundaries, um, and, you know, practicing those things. Um, and then, you know, when you have, you can't really develop your boundaries unless you're really clear about your beliefs and your values. Like, because like, I'll give an example of like, um, so like, I believe my mental and spiritual health is very important. Like it's very important for me. I think it's very important for the world. Um, so that's a belief I have. My value is to practice meditation and prayer. Like that's a very important value to me. My boundary is I don't let people interrupt me when I'm meditating. Like I, mommy needs her space and this is my time. So that's my boundary. So they're all connected. So you cannot uphold those boundaries unless you are really clear about your beliefs and your values, because those are who you are. Mm -hmm. That's what's important to you. So, and do you articulate so, that when you talk to your children? Like, are, are they, do you talk to them about your values and your beliefs as it relates to your practices? I try to, I haven't been great about it, to be honest. It's, so tricky as a parent in recovery and who's lived such a dysfunctional life my whole life and learning how to undo all of those unhealthy um, parenting styles yeah because you know they're what I grew up with so it's it's been a slow sort of trickle of me learning how to do those things with my kids and communicate that with them so you know, it's an ongoing, like, just like 
we all are, right? Like this is a journey that we're it all It is a learning process. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's really, you know, it, it, that's the best place to practice that for me really is with my kids, you know, it really is. Um, and I want to give you um, such kudos on being open about your relationship with your husband and um, just acknowledging how much work it is, you know? Oh, my God, yeah. So I, too, met my husband. I think you said you were around. I was 22 when I met my husband. Oh, yeah. Um, and he was 26, and I thought he was a full-blown adult. And... <laughs> We, um, he's, he laughs when I say this, but I've been sober 19 years and I've, we've been dating 18 years. So, you know, he has really been on this very slow roller coaster ride of Vanessa adulting. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, he really got the playbook for life and I really <laughs> didn't. And it has been painful, but what has leveled us? has been being on a parenting journey together. You know, what has really been that, like, what do they call it? Like, the natural denominator, like, that, you know, it's we are on this parenting journey together that started at the same time that, like, mm -hmm. no one's perfectly qualified for. Um, but, it, man, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work in my spiritual condition directly affects the spiritual condition of my family, mm -hmm. you know, and that's up to me to, to be in, in practice and alignment and create those boundaries so I can keep myself healthy. So I really appreciate you talking about that. You know, it was mm -hmm. like, we were many, many years into our relationship when we had our first son, he'll be nine. So do the math, but uh, it took, it, it, when we also had our daughter, our second, that was really, I feel for me, like when shit hit the fan, you know, I had been sober many years and it was just like, wow, I don't have the tool. I am not equipped to do this, you know, functionally. So I'm just here to tell you, like, that was me mm. completely dry and sober and two under two still really was hard for me. Um, and that's when we said, you know, marriage counseling is probably a great thing. And it wasn't marriage counseling as much as couples therapy, you know, just like, how do we do this dance together and also find our own identities and our identity as a couple post kids. And, you know, there's just a lot to manage. It's a lot. And we too don't have family here, you know, mm -hmm. so it's a lot to do it alone. So give yourself some yeah. grace. We're all in the same boat together, you know? Oh yeah. And I, I want to like also articulate that, um, what was so amazing in recovery and therapy was taking responsibility for my life and to stop blaming everybody for making me feel this way that I drank at everybody. Um, you know, it was my childhood. It was my mom. It was my fucked up dad situation. It was, you know, sexual assault. You know, I had lots of things to blame, quote unquote, my drinking on. And another eye opening moment for me was when I, I did my steps for the first time with my sponsor and, you know, going through the, the fourth step and, and my resentments 
and I, I just couldn't like, well, I was a victim. Like I was a child. I couldn't do anything about this. So, so there, you know, like I, I really felt so vindicated and justified in my hanging on to this hurt and these resentments. And she kindly pointed out to me, she was so patient with me. God bless that woman. She kindly pointed out to me. She said, Erica, your part is that you are hanging on to this, that you are still living in this. That's your part. It's like, oh, right. That's how I'm still participating and contributing to the problem here. I'm not in acceptance. I'm not letting go. I'm not, you know, um, I'm not uh, looking at like how I'm not a, a perfect person. You know, I make mistakes too. I've made so many mistakes and I've been given grace and forgiveness. Um, you know, it was horrible to my mom, horrible for decades because I really believed she deserved it. And, you know, and now it's like, wow, I you need to, you know, I need to like really acknowledge that and my part in that. And so there's just this beautiful, I like to think of, um, you know, I humility was like a baseball bat to my knees when I got sober. Like I am done. Like you are done. Surrender. Like you cannot, you are not in control of this. And, and then it evolved into this beautiful thing, like a thing of reverence of, oh, I'm not in control. Thank God I'm not in control. You know, thank God there is something bigger than me out there that I just need to trust. And that that's is a so much easier. Beautiful feeling. You know? um, I have to ask in, um, before we wrap, mm -hmm. did you end up having a relationship with your biological father? Oh, um, so, so my biological father had, um, polycystic kidney disease. And so when I, when he married my mom, um, he had just had a kidney transplant and he was very sick and, um, eventually the, he, the kidney got rejected and he was back on dialysis. I just want to mention, this is really interesting to me. So my dad, you know, he was a big drug addict for many years. He sniffed glue. That was his favorite thing. He um, was a heroin addict when he came back from Vietnam. He, uh, he then, you know, got sober. I don't think he ever did any kind of program. He got sober. He became a religious nut. Um, and his addiction because I believe you know, addiction is addiction is addiction. And it's so interesting to me, like how his addiction and his addiction ended up killing him because he, he had no kidneys and he was on dialysis. And you, when you have no kidneys, you're supposed to eat really healthy. You have, you're, you're literally allowed like four ounces of water. Yeah. You guys, this is the weirdest thing because as Erica and I get to know each other, our coincidences in life are very, very similar. Tell me. You don't know this yet, but my father died of kidney failure. No. And he was very angry that he could not have like potatoes and milk and like all these things he loved. That's so hmm. interesting. So he didn't give up milk. He was like, you guys can have potatoes, but I'm drinking milk. 
And he smoked until, I mean, probably not the day he died because he was in the hospital for a few weeks before, but smoked right up until he died. Yeah. That's that's so so crazy. Very crazy, Erica. That is so interesting because that is, that's what killed him. It wasn't the kidney disease. It was his, he would drink two liters of diet soda in a day. He would eat cheeseburgers and french fries and Mexican fries. I mean, he just, and he would end up in the hospital all the time because he couldn't control that. And, you know, he couldn't live the healthy life that was necessary to keep him alive. And so in the end, I honestly don't even know what killed him. But, um, you know, he was alone. It was very sad. I was living in San Francisco um, my, my mom had left him at that point. He had, um, schizophrenia. Um, he, you know, it was just, it was very sad. And we, he tried to have a relationship with me and we tried, but he was just not really capable. He was a good man. And, uh, I appreciated that I got to know him, but he died when I was 23, I think. So, um, and then my other father, the the stepdad, technically, he died of alcoholism. Wow. Too. Yeah. Wow. So. Well, you've had a lot of loss um, due to this disease. And do you yeah. feel like <clears throat> that plays a big role in your feeling compelled to do service in this oh, space? Yeah. yeah. It's so important to me. Yeah. It just, because addiction, just like we heard in meeting yesterday, the ripple effect of addiction, it doesn't just impact the person, the addict, it impacts everyone around them and destroys everybody's lives. And I just like, it, it breaks my heart. And I know that the world would be such a better place if um, people had tools and solutions and and community and support. Yeah. Well, you are doing such amazing, amazing work. Um, I like to end my episodes by asking our guests what their favorite non-alcoholic beverage of choice is right now. <laughs> what do you like at the end mm-hmm. of the night? <clears throat> oh, my God. Um, well, I never really figured out anything other than bubbly water honestly like, hey you and Corey, you're the bubble water you're in the bubble water category much... and tea sometimes i'll have tea <clears throat> you know but... i'm a newer convert to tea i yeah. love tea recently yeah i like it in the evening i have my coffee every day um yeah i think it, the, the having that substitute is really important because I remember when I first quit drinking, like my trigger was like, oh, it's time to cook. Oh, it's time to pour my drink, you know. So like having that replacement drink was really helpful of just bubbly water can in my hand. Yep, absolutely. I think um, Corey says they call it like a coldie in their house or something. So, <laughs> well, Erica, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for sharing your experience, strength and hope with us. And thanks for your time. Your message is just really, really so, oh, really, you touched me so deeply today. So I know that you were helping our listeners out there and um, wishing you the best of luck as you launch your business. 
Thank you. So great to be on this. I I really enjoy. I'm so glad we met. Yes, absolutely. Me too. Alrighty. Have a good one. I am Vanessa Wellstead with Wherever You Go, There You Are. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you were able to identify with feelings, if not facts, and you come away feeling a bit more a part of. If you liked what you heard, please like, follow, and subscribe. I'm very passionate about educating our communities on the language of recovery. Help us spread the mission by sharing with friends and family. If you would like to join us for a conversation on the world of addiction and recovery, please DM us or shoot me an email at vw at vanessawellstead.com. Remember, it's a we game, not a me game.